This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This week, I have a special treat for my listeners. You might recall that I previously shared a podcast with you all that I highly recommended called Deep Cover. Deep Cover, a Pushkin podcast, is all about people who lead double lives. Each season is dedicated to another story told in depth by Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Jake Halpern through his own research and investigations and using interviews straight from the people who live these stories. I'm pleased to tell you that Deep Cover is back for season three. In Deep Cover, Never Seen Again, you'll hear a story that I'm sure will have you hooked from beginning to the end like I was. It all starts with a girl who goes missing from a small South Carolina town in 1999. Her case quickly goes cold, but one detective determined to solve it stumbles upon another missing woman case seven years later on the opposite side of the country, and he becomes convinced that the two cases are connected. From there, the story takes twists and turns that you won't see coming. Deep Cover from Pushkin just released the first episode of Season 3 on January 30th. Today, I'm happy to speak with Jake Halpern about this fascinating story and share it with you. Welcome, Jake. Hey, thanks for having me. So the first question, because we're going to get into this, but we're going to talk a little bit about this is a very different kind of case than I think people have maybe heard on like a a podcast or true crime podcast or, you know, a journalistic type of podcast, because it's it's not what you expect, I think, when you first start listening to the first episode. Um, So the the first question is, how did you first learn about this case and what made you choose it to investigate? Um, Yeah. and, And by the way. I'm going to t- I'm going to answer that question but first we wanted to we wanted to make it clear right away that it's even though it starts off with a missing girl or young woman that right away we kind of tip our hats at this is but this is not going where you think it's going it's got all these twists so because there are so many stories out there like this but the short answer to your question is I've always been interested in people that snuck their way into um, into college, but into the Ivy Leagues in particular. I remember when I was an undergraduate at Yale, there was a guy who I knew kind of a little bit who had snuck his way in and had then been outed. The university claimed that they figured it out on their own because his work was subpar, but I, I don't believe that. <laughs> I think that he must have slipped up in some other way. Um, and I think that sometimes these people are even brighter than the people that did in the old-fashioned way because to pull off such a ruse requires something of extreme cleverness. So anyway, all that is a long-winded way of saying, I started looking into just the more in- most interesting stories I'd ever found that had ever been reported about people that snuck into the Ivy Leagues. And this one story involving a woman named Esther Reed leapt off the page because um, as people started investigating who she was, they, be- they became convinced that she was a sp- or at least some people became convinced that she was a spy um, and that she was spying for Russia or a foreign government and that she had tricked all these people. And I was like, really? Um, and I started digging into her story and I tracked her down in the small town in the Pacific Northwest where she is living. 
and started talking to her. And the more I learned, the more drawn in I was. Um, so that that's kind of like the short version of how I, and I, and I can tell you what she does now, but I, I think I'm going to stop myself because I don't want to give too many spoilers. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking the same thing. I was, I was thinking there's, there's so many like topics we can, you know, t- discuss about this, this podcast, because there's, there's all these different kind of like side stories and things or, or things yeah. that, that, that like creep up in the story. But again, I was trying to be very careful too about the way I crafted the questions because I don't want to give it away because it's one of those things I found that I, you know, I listened to the first episode and at the end, I'm like, wait a minute, what happens next? You know? And so in the second episode, okay, wait, what happens next? So I don't want to give that away because that I think is really fun for the listeners to kind of think about what well, what could that mean? Like what what is happening here? This is so strange how this one story starts off as one thing and ends up as another. And it, it turns. Yeah, totally. It turns into something totally else. And what we do, th- this woman that I tracked down, right? You don't actually hear from her until episode three. Cause as I started unpacking the story, what happened was, is there was a detective named John Campbell and I met him and I met him second. But when I met him, I was like, Oh gosh, this really story really starts with him. it's It's like you said, it begins with one investigation of this, young woman named Brooke Henson, who's living in the mountains of South Carolina, who um, goes missing in 1999. It's it's really mysterious. There's a 4th of July party. She's having a fight with her boyfriend. Um, at like 2.30 in the morning, she walks out the door and heads down this darkened road and is never seen again, basically. And there's a she leaves a note for her boyfriend that says, follow me if you care. And so this detective, John Campbell, in this small town gets basically eventually assigned to this case. And he's interviewing people, and no one can figure out where she went, why she left at that hour. Although John, the detective, suspects that she's murdered because he just, too much time passes. I mean, he's seven years, in fact, passed before, I'm giving away a little bit here, but seven years pass, and he gets a call from New York City from a detective up there and says, hey, you're you're the detective looking for Brooke Henson down in South Carolina. Girl's been missing seven years. Yeah, I found her. She's a student at Columbia University in New York. And John, the detective, is like, really? And then this sets off this, that that really is the story of the first episode. And that sets off this crazy string of events where is it really that young woman, Brooke Henson? Is it an imposter? Like, what's going on here? And then then we go down the rabbit hole of what's going on. Right. And everybody kind of has their ideas about what's going on, which, you know, that kind of unravels as we go. But one of the things I wanted to ask about the the podcast overall, so Deep Cover is all about people who live double lives. And you've been able to meet some of these people and get to hear the story straight from their own mouth, from their own experiences. Are there common threads, threads that you've found with these people that have done this? I just kind of wonder, is there something that you've picked up? Because that's just, it's just a strange thing to do. Like have two different lives. Like you're this person, but you're living this life with this, maybe another name or in, in another capacity. Is there something that you've kind of been able to pick up that ties these people together? It's a great question. I would say the first two seasons, absolutely, right? The first season is an FBI agent who goes undercover for like six or seven years to infiltrate this marijuana smuggling ring in 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 the in the 80s and he takes it all the way up to like the kingpin who turns out to be general noriega of panama and he he ends up being going up against the cia basically so he was kind of 
I mean, Ned, his name is Ned Timmons. I think he, he'll he be the first to tell you he loved the rush of being undercover and the kind of being close to the edge and uh, the adrenaline of it. Uh, and I think to some extent that's that's true of the second season as well. It's it's also this guy, the second season is a story of Bob Cooley, who was a mob lawyer who for kind of no ex- easily explainable reason decides to flip. They don't have the goods on him Um he he just decides he's going to start working with the FBI and take down the mob. Part of this the season explores like, can we trust this guy? What is his motives? But I think on some level, Bob also, the minute that he flips and starts becoming this informant that's going to take down the mob, he's like the centerpiece of like the most exciting action movie that's taking place in Chicago. And there's a kind of similar kind of power and adrenaline that goes with it. That unites those two guys like very powerful even though one of them was kind of an informant the other was an fbi agent this story this story really is quite different because as you get to know the woman that's that's going that's cycling through these identities um her birth name was esther reed and we start to kind of there's a similar question which is like why is she doing this what is motivating her but as for the motivations themselves it, it it was not for a love of of the life that came with this. I mean, I think it was incredibly nerve wracking, and she just felt like she was under constant duress. For her, she was she was escaping something, and um, we can <laughs> we can get into more, and maybe the listeners, if they listen, will hear it. But I think for her, it was driven by fear and by a desire to escape this kind of inciting incident that gets her running in the first place. Less so than a kind of love of the of the kind of adrenaline out of life that comes with living um, these double identities, and and she's also much younger than they are. So that her whole voice and her and that was part of why I want to do this. I didn't want to do another story about a kind of older law enforcement guy. I wanted a totally different POV. So that's another thing I think that's really um, compelling about this podcast series is that the people that you get to talk to, they're all very. They're all very unique. Um, and I was kind of wondering about, um, I think it's their personalities that make them compelling. So who stood out to you maybe, or maybe a couple of people that stood out to you this season as kind of your your favorite interview? Um, and also, was there anybody that you wanted to talk to in the story and you, you couldn't or you didn't? That's a great question. Um, all right. The two, at, at core, I always think like, well, I, I, teach, I teach writing. And so I always tell my students, that story at its at its very core should be simple. And um, this story is at its core about um, a girl who is missing, probably murdered, uh, a young woman, I should say, the young woman who, who takes her identity, who's on the run, and then the detective who's obsessed with finding them. And so the two characters that just ended up proving the most interesting to me were the detective... Um, whose name was John Campbell, and then the woman that was the imposter, who was um, Esther Reed. And um, I interviewed them both at length. And just starting with the detective, he he was this guy who was a detective in a really small town where, like, nothing was happening. And he was always yearning for, for the big case that would probably never come to him. He, on his own time, like was tracking down the Unabomber in the 90s. He was tracking down the Oklahoma City bomber. And all like almost as a hobby, like he was going to solve these big crimes. Um, but, you know, there's he's a small town detective. And then this story drops in his lap of the 
this young woman who's murdered and then someone up, pops up using her name seven years later. And then he just goes full tilt on it. And what's interesting about John is that he is very hardworking. He's very bright, but he's also has an imagination about, he says, what he says to me is, Jake, you have to understand a lot of law enforcement folks don't use their imagination on kind of plausible explanations for why things happen. And so that limits their view, but he's quick to admit that his imagination can sometimes get carried away with things. And he's the one that really believes that she's a spy. And he, and so um, he's interesting to me because he's, he's really smart, but he's also obsessive and he gets a little bit ahead of himself sometimes. So he would be the number one. And then there was just Esther trying to understand. <laughs> she was so bright, so articulate. How did she get into the spot? Why, why is she running? And what was going on with her? And the one thing I'll just also add with these two people is I spent a lot of time talking to them. I mean, hours and hours and hours and um, days. And and over the course of this, and, and, and in fact, by the time we're done, it ends up being almost a year of talking to them. And I think that, you know, story is like onion layers. You know, you pull it back and you pull it back. And if, and I, the more times you, you ask them to answer a question or you have them talk, the, the kind of deeper you get into it and the more trust you build, um, and so that's, these were the, the two central characters. And there, there was a kind of, I don't know if you have seen the movie or the musical Les Mis but with Javert, the detective who's yeah. chasing Jean Valjean. There was a kind of Javert quality to John Campbell. Last question, who do I wish I could talk to? Uh, and that's a clear one. That's Brooke Henson. Um, she is the young woman who initially goes missing, the woman who's presumed dead, um, and we circle back to her story at the end. Where is she? What happened to her? And that remains a mystery. Um, so there's the mystery of what happened to her. And there's also just, I think it, she is presumed dead at this point. And whenever you're writing or, or, or doing a podcast about someone that isn't there, was, you can interview their relatives, which I do, and you can get whatever archival, but there's some kind of inherent unknowability to them. And um so obviously she's the one I wish I could have talked to. Yeah, I was very surprised actually to hear how much you got to talk to, you know, Esther Reed. You know, I wasn't expecting that. I thought, oh, okay, well, this is the person who, you know, was this imposter and usually they're not going to want to talk to you because, right, they just got, got caught doing something they're not supposed to do. But you got, you know, it seemed like, you know, very close, really got really in-depth to her story. And I, I really appreciated that because that's something we don't often get. Um, and then I was thinking about John when you're talking about the detective. It's it reminds me a lot of, of probably my a lot of my listeners, right? <laughs> Where they're like, yeah, oh, totally. <laughs> they'll get into these stories and it's like, oh, well, wait a minute, you know, but but what about this? And, and you come and you, you see this on um, you know, chat boards and I think people are talking about crimes or true crimes or unsolved crimes. And they're really getting into these things. And like you said, we'll go down these rabbit holes because why? Because it's kind of fun to do. It's kind of fun to think about, oh, this puzzle and maybe we could, maybe we could solve it or maybe I can solve it or whatever. Totally. Um, and, and, but I liked, there was one part in the podcast where you basically bring up the, the idea of Occam's razor. And I was thinking that yeah. this whole time. When he's talking, I'm like, well, wait a minute, though. But this is what we do, though, as these people that listen to true totally. crime, is we start spinning off into these 
you know, weird, you know, even, uh, you know, like uh, conspiracies and, and all kinds of things, when really it's probably the simplest explanation of, is what happened. You know, that's, but totally. then like you said, he had a, a, a different take on it, which was, I thought was really kind of clever where he's like, well, wait a minute, but maybe you're just not, you know, you're, you're just not creative enough or you're just not, you know, thinking that way creatively enough. Right. And I thought, well, that's, there's a point to be made for that, you know? Right. And the thing that's so interesting about John is that sometimes he's right. So like at the beginning of this story, when the, then when he's, you know, he's investigating the disappearance of Brooke Henson, quiet for seven years, presumed dead, gets a call from New York and says, Hey, I found your, your girl. She's alive and well. She's a student at Columbia. John doesn't believe it. And he actually constructs some questions to test whether right. she's the real Brooke Henson. And she passes those questions. Yes. And John still doesn't believe it. And so he says, I want DNA, which is like, as they say in the podcast, is so ballsy. He's like this <laughs> small town South Carolina cop. He's telling the New York guy, no, I want DNA. And the New York City cop somehow agrees. But when he shows up to get DNA, she she runs for it. Mm-hmm. And and I, what I say is like, your, your average person would never, like, he's so convinced that she's an imposter, which seems kind of far-fetched. So he's right there. And then I'll say one other, and I'm going to give away a little bit, but it's it's worth giving away. In the last episode, I'm down in South Carolina um, with John, and we're looking at for where he has a spot that he thinks where this young woman, Brooke Henson, where her remains might be. And he takes me to this spot. Um, and as we're there, it's on the edge of kind of, I'd say, a rural highway. And as we're there, he tells me that we're being watched. Um, this spot is being watched, which I just 100% don't believe. It just seems so far-fetched and kind of, he's an X-Files fan. And so it felt like something like he would have dreamed up out of the X-Files. And I say to him, you'll hear me say on tape, you listen to it. You hear me say like, I, I, I have to be honest with you. I don't, I don't believe that. And he said, yeah, every time we come up here, we get a tip from saying that where you guys are looking is wrong. You have to look somewhere else. And when we got back into town, the police chief said, hey, well, you guys are up there. We got a call saying you guys are looking in the wrong spot. She's buried somewhere else. And it was really creepy. And it was was also this moment. It was just it was it was it was I don't know. I mean, it was like shiver runs up your spine. And it was a moment where I was completely dismissive of John and his what sounded like completely far fetched conspiratorial view of the world. And on that occasion, he was totally right. So I think that's where what's interesting about the story is that it's not like he's like a crackpot is like just spitting out wrong ideas left and right. He's spitting out ideas, some of which actually have merit, some of which to my mind, and you'll listen to it are pretty far off the mark. The problem is how do you know which is which? And that question becomes crucial because he does go down some roads that I at least identify as being wrong paths. Um, so, um, anyway, yeah, it's interesting. The Occam's razor thing is super interesting. Yeah. The only thing I thought I could think about that was like, you know, we might not understand because small towns are a completely different animal. You know, I I live in a city and I know that people know things because it's such a small community and you know, things about these type of people, these people are like this or, you know, it's, it's a completely different thing. So he may just be tuned into that, you know, because he lives that, there, worked right. there. Mm-hmm. 
So and we couldn't, we, we, you know. That's we right. And that's that. where you have to have like some humility. Like I'm coming in, not that I'm from such a big city, but I'm from a city in the Northeast, you know, I don't know anything about small town. Exactly. Me either. <laughs> either. Yeah. That, there, it's got to be something tied up to that because there's just no way. Yeah. talk a little bit about um, Esther Reed, the story of Esther Reed. So while this is definitely a story that's like rooted in in kind of a true crime case, it kind of seems on the surface that it's not a big enough crime to like get as much attention as it did. You know what I mean? And like you said, it kind of gets spun out. So what do you think contributed to this becoming such because you know and I didn't know this but apparently there was a lot that was written about it she was being searched for you know this person this this imposter this possible spy or whatever she was Um, what do you think contributed to the Esther Reed star becoming as big a news item as it did well it's a good question and I I spend basically a whole episode it's the fourth episode looking at this. So she she fled a family situation without getting into too many of the of the giveaway details. She was fleeing a family situation that was not working for her. For her it was toxic. And she was also she had um she had mental health issues that she was dealing with um, as best she could. So she had these she had things in her life and her personal life that, that, that she needed to leave where she was and who she was. And she was young. And this was, you know, she says, looking back, her strategy wasn't a good one at all, but it was the only one that she could see at that time to kind of salvage her sanity. So she ends up running. What's interesting about the story is that no one can really fathom that this would be the reason that she's running. It's, it's, they look at it and they say like, as John Campbell did, John Campbell's looking at this set of facts as the detective and he's saying, huh, she's, I think I have an imposter who's posing as, as, as another woman who was dead. Um, she had dated a few uh, military guys, two West Point cadets and a Naval Academy midshipman. And he looks at these set of facts, right? And he comes to the conclusion that the logical underlying explanation is that she's a spy. This gets back to your point about Occam's razor, which mm-hmm. Occam's razor says usually make the the assumpt- the the, the uh, explanation that makes the fewest assumptions is usually correct. So it's not that John looked at fact points that weren't accurate. They were, but he strings them together using a series of assumptions, which really stretches the Occam's razor model. And what happens is that... Um, the chief of police in the little town where he is based basically says, you should open up your investigation and share all the information you have with, with the local media. And so he does that. Um, but he also starts sharing some of his theories, some of his espionage and spy theories. And the local media gets wind of this. And then a guy who is uh, a kind of finder of stories, a middleman, takes this local news story and presents it to the national media and it becomes uh, a, a front page story in the newspapers and then eventually becomes a television show where um, they hire a private detective to track her down. It's almost like kind of a reality TV show where they're, they're, track, they're tracking her down. And all of this is spinning out from these theories that, oh, maybe she's a spy, that she's a kind of femme fatale. Um, 
when the reality is there's a young woman here who is running and fleeing, but has like much more kind of personal motivation for doing it. But by the time that she is caught, this thing has has spun out and is like this massive news story. And in fact, eventually, by the time she's caught, she's on the, the Secret Service's top 10 most wanted list. Oh, my God. So part of the story is just like looking at like, how the hell did this happen? How did this story turn into this kind of monster that it that it um, that when you look at it, you're like, doesn't really make sense that it should be. Yeah. I mean, you think about the nightmare of that scenario. It's like, here's somebody who just wants to disappear, who just doesn't want to be yeah. bothered. And it's like, everybody's looking for her. Everybody, you know, it's like, it becomes this, this media thing. It's like, that's, it's so crazy how that happened, you know, but the, people have to listen to it to, to see how it unfolds because it's like, wait a minute, what, what, what happened? Why did that <laughs> You know, and it, it yeah, just it's, really, it, it's like, it's, it was a good story it, it, that they came up with, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it, there's all these moments, these, all these small things that if it hadn't gone one little way, it wouldn't happen. Like, for example, um, when John, the, the small town detective, he is trying to figure out who is this person at Columbia who's claiming to be Brooke Henson and, and Columbia won't cooperate with him. Um, and, the, and so uh, maybe because it's embarrassed that it's been duped or whatever. And so John sends um, a state subpoena, like a, using the kind of Greenville County subpoena. And Columbia's like, no, we'll only recognize a federal subpoena. So John's like, he's a detective, right? He's like, oh my gosh, how am I going to do this? How am I going to get a federal subpoena? Well, it turns out <laughs> he had been working with the Secret Service on a counterfeiting cases. And he'd been doing this because his department couldn't afford to get him a computer. So he teamed up with the secret service to bust some local counterfeiters so they could have a computer, right? Just all he wanted was the internet. <laughs> it's a convoluted way but to do it. But... <laughs> then he does such a good job. He gets a citation from like the head of the secret service and it's on his wall at his little office in, in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. So when Columbia basically says no dice, he's like, huh, my buddies at the secret service might be able to help me. So then the Secret Service gets drawn into this investigation, <laughs> totally by chance. Random, yeah. But the fact that the Secret Service gets involved in this turns this into this really big thing. And that's just one of many, many examples where there's like a strange, small, quirky fact that like just ups it up a notch. And that keeps on happening. And it keeps on happening. And by the time that we're done, this thing is just like, you know, this like um, juggernaut of a, of 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 a story. Yeah. It's like this snowball rolling downhill keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, it's just going to crash. It's yeah, that was, it, it's really interesting how it unfolds, but yeah, all the pieces together. And again, the, the podcast is so good because the way the story is told and, and my listeners love a good story, a good yarn, you know, like, like really listening it to, to that way. So you're listening and sometimes you're like, wait a minute, is this, this is true though. Like, this is not made up. And so sometimes it's hard to believe, but it like, yeah, this actually happened. But, you know, fiction is, is this, you know, made up of these kind of things. And then you make up something bigger. But, yeah, you didn't need to with this one. One of the things, too, I wanted to, to, to touch on briefly was the fact that we have a, a, a woman at the center of the story. Um, it's, it's about her. It's about the case. It's about. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we have noticed us in the you know, true crime biz is that Crimes involving women, either as victims or as the perpetrators, they 
always need a certain element for them to kind of go viral, to become a big story. That's something that yeah. people pay attention to, right? Um, and that's what I've kind of just, you know, boiled it down to a little bit. And, and I wanted you to speak about this a little bit. What you've, what you think about how this happens or why this happens is that women that were women as, like I said, victims or, or perpetrators who their crimes get a lot of attention are either considered or portrayed um, like in the media or by other people as good girls or bad girls. You know what I mean? There's like no real in between. It's kind of like, yeah. oh, you know, especially if it's a victim, it's like, oh, well, you know, she was a young mother and, you know, she lived in a Midwestern, you know, whatever. It's kind of like this, uh, right. you know, that or it's the bad girl story. Like, oh, this person yeah. is. And it kind of feels like this is what happened with the Esther Reed story is they ha- they spun her out into this really bad, you know, like this this is agent, this spy. It's just this bad girl thing, right? Um, the bad girl thing doesn't work for people, though, that if they're just like Brooke Henson, which consider, totally. you know what I mean? That doesn't work because those people are just like, yeah, well, you know. Stuff like that happens to somebody who parties too much or whatever, right? So yep. it, it's a little bit of that, but I just wanted to, to kind of get your your take on this about no, how these are portrayed. You're spot on, and in fact, when Esther was featured on America's Most Wanted, right? So she goes on the as this thing spirals like kind of out of control and gets bigger and bigger. Um, she she goes on. She's put on America's Most Wanted. Okay, <laughs> I mean. And, um, and, the, and then the name of the episode is bad girls. Oh, shoot. I mean, it's like, right, it's right to your point. I mean, it's like, so I think these two young women that go missing are like a case study in what you're talking about, because basically like Brooke Henson is, she's just a right, she's, she's definitely not a bad girl. Um, you know, she, I wouldn't say she was like, uh, someone who you would, Peg is like strictly good girl. She was just like a regular person um, who, you know, she liked to party with her friends. She was very kind. Um, you know, she was she was kind of a, a kind of typical, you know, late teen young woman. And when she goes missing, there's really very little attention that's paid to her story. Um, it's not until her story intersects with um, Esther Reed's story that it blows up. And Esther's story really only catches everybody's attention because she's depicted as a, a seductress mm-hmm. who's like seducing military men in her capacity as a spy. And I tell you, I've talked to two of the young men who were West Point cadets and in, in this story, and that, that's just not true. It was it was a, it was a tale that the that that at parts of the media just got carried away with because. I think it was the kind of story that they they thought the public liked, which is this kind of bad girl spy seductress who was kind of, you know, manipulating the entire world. And it was it was baseless, um, or I wouldn't say totally baseless, but it was um, it it got turned into kind of a caricature of itself. Is probably a better way to put it. Yeah, because they even took some texts between her and the guys she was dating and like totally made it into this story about how she was trying to get information out of them or or something like yes. that or get secrets. I mean, these are just like they're they're, they're still like cadets. They're not like top level. They have access to no. That's what that's what the cadet told me when I say we we're like 
We're like in a military history class. We had access to nothing that was top secret (laughs) because her asking me about this was like not, was the farthest thing you could be from gathering like hot intel. Um, but when portrayed a certain way, it, it seems all rather rather sinister. Mm-hmm. So um, it's interesting too, because I thought about it a lot in comparison to the kind of Catch Me If You Can story where um, the Frank Abagnale character who was at the center of it, who was played by Leonardo DiCaprio in the movie. I mean, he's he does a lot of bad stuff, but he's basically portrayed very, very kind of favorably. Um, you're kind of rooting for him. Everything is kind of very glamorous. Um, and in Esther's case, she was basically vilified. Um, so yeah, I think that gender plays like a very defining role in the way these stories are presented. Definitely. Because yeah, you're right. I didn't think about that, that, um, you know, comparison, but that totally makes sense. Like, yeah, it's like, oh, he's so clever and he's so, you know, how did he get away with it? It's like, yeah, like rooting for them. And for her, it was like, oh my God, this is a terrible person. And, you know, she's, she needs to be caught and and put away forever and kind of thing. Um, Again, it's just that, I think it's that fear of the feminine power over men that really plays into it. Like, oh, she's getting these, you know, she's being able to use her feminine charms, you know, to get these things from these men and, and uh, things like that. I mean, it makes a great soap opera, but it's, it's, it's kind of always overplayed, I think a little bit. Yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy. And you, in the, you know, we go fairly deep into one of the relationships she has with one of these young men. You'll hear, you'll hear the real story, which is the funny thing is, is actually a much more complicated and interesting story because um, they really cared about one another. And, but he did, there were things that he didn't know about her. Um, And there were things that he says, looking back should have tipped him off that something was off because he didn't even know her as, as Esther. He knew her as, as Natalie. And he thought she was a professional chess player who lived this itinerant life playing in chess tournaments and um, had a manager in Germany. And, and he had this whole story that he believed about who she was, much of which was incorrect. But what he points out, and I think very eloquently, is the core of the person that, that he cared about and then in fact he loved was real. And I think she would say the same thing. Um, and so the relate, but the relationship was, was deviled by this. Um, it was actually a much more interesting story than like some person who's just trying to like get some military secrets. Like they had a, they had a real relationship, but it was built on these kind of precarious set of lies that ultimately would undermine it and complicate it at every step of the way. It's always interesting to me how when people approach it as storytellers, they look at a set of facts, but they, they gravitate towards the cliche instead of actually kind of probing deeper and trying to look at the subtleties of it, which are often much more original and interesting than the cliche. Right. Um, and that's certainly the case that I found in in this relationship uh, between the two of them. Yeah. There's one thing, one last, I wanted to ask you about just, just as, as a journalist, as somebody who, you know, like you said, finds these stories and figures, you know, I'm going to investigate this and I'm going to tell this story. Once I, I learn, you know, what the story is, how I want to tell it, you know, how I want to present it. One big topic, or maybe we can even say controversy when it comes to covering stories that deal with crime, because we are dealing with not only perpetrators, but victims, is Mm -hmm. whether or not what we're doing is exploitive in nature. And we get this all the time, Mm -hmm. right? Like you're telling these stories and it's, it's somebody's, you know, worst 
worst thing that ever happened to them. And, you know, you're, you're, you're putting it out there that for quote entertainment purposes or whatever. And I think that we all wrestle with this. Like we kind of have to thread this needle to some extent all the time. So as a journalist who covers crime cases or criminals or just criminal acts, how do you kind of go about ensuring that you're being responsible in the way that you tell these stories or, or that, that resonates well with you? Yeah, that's, that's a hugely important question. Um, and it's one that always causes me a lot of worrying and a lot of thought. I mean, before I did this, I spent four years following a family of Syrian refugees, um, documenting their life. And that was filled with all kinds of moral complications about whether I could help them, when I could help them, whether this was their story, how um, how we could share and whatever came from it. Um, you know, it was a series that ended up winning the Pulitzer Prize. And one of the things I did in that story is I just shared the prize money with the two brothers. Um, so that was after the series had come out in the Times because there's all these rules about can you share money with them when the story's going on. It, every story you ever do that I've ever done is 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 kind of fraught with this um and there's never any easy answers in this case i very much asked the question like what if it's strictly for entertainment purposes then it doesn't pass the test right then you're just you're just kind of you're doing exactly what you said which is just exploiting someone else's pain for the purposes of entertainment and profit which i i you know at this i I have no interest in doing um so the first thing i did is i had a series of long conversations with esther and one of the things you'll learn if you listen to the podcast is esther has this incredible life that she goes on to live after she gets out of prison and she there's a component of it that's an education let's put it that way without giving away too much and one of the things that she said to me is that um you know the media kind of mishandled this or that it was i was treated really unfairly but also i was dealing with some real mental health issues and if we can address that in this telling of it, um, I'll feel um, I feel like it was worth it. So right off the bat, I was like, okay, I want to try to understand where the media went wrong. And so there's a little bit of a kind of breakdown and an analysis of that, but also trying to understand how her mental health challenges factored into the choices that she made. So that was one thing. And then with the Hensons, um, Brooke Henson is the young woman who went missing and who is presumed still is at this point presumed dead. I really wanted to connect with someone in her family um, and kind of get their sense of it. And eventually I talked to two of her cousins and her aunt and her uncle, her, her parents are deceased. They were the closest relatives that I could find. And I, I wanted to get a sense of like where they were on this. Like if 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 they were saying like right off the bat, like Jake, this is, I, I, you're dredging this up. This is painful. Don't do this. Um, I don't know what I would have done. I, I don't know if I would have walked away from it, but I would have had to have a very serious moment where I thought about why I was doing this or whether I should proceed and all that. Um, but what they told me was basically she's kind of been forgotten. And what they really want at this point is they want to find her remains. Uh, they believe her cousins and her aunt uh, believe she's deceased and her remains have never been found. So she's never had a proper burial and they have never had closure for this. And um, likewise, the chief of police of Traveler's Rest, um, law enforcement doesn't always open up to, you know, the media or journalists, but they also want to find her. And so they were, they were like extremely forthcoming. They were, it was almost, I was like, 
apologizing, especially to the cousin. I am so sorry for dredging this up because it gets emotional when they tell the story. And they were saying, we're, we're just really glad you're doing the story in the hopes that maybe, maybe it will lead to someone coming forward and um, us having some closure to this. So that gave those, all those facts combined made me feel like, okay, I feel like there's an opportunity that's something worthwhile aside from just like, you know, advertisements being sold and clicks being had um, that can justify a telling of the story. But then of course the onus is on me to make sure that I honor that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I hope it's coming across, but it's something that I wrestled with a lot and um, sure. I lost some sleep over it on a night or two, but I feel like that's, that's as it should be. Yeah, I think that makes that makes perfect sense. But it, it's always a series of judgment calls, I think, all the way, uh, you know, totally. as, as you're putting out somebody's story, you, you just have to try to do the best you can. And we don't always get 100% right. And I'm really grateful that most of the time, you know, listeners for your know, podcast or watching shows about these cases or stuff are, are pretty, um, pretty sensitive to that. They They know that these are not easy stories to tell sometimes or um, yeah. and give us a little, little bit of a break if we don't always get it hundred percent right. But we, you know, they know that we're sincere when we try to do our best. I think that's, that's the best that we can do. So yeah, I, I appreciate that a, a lot. Um, I'll just but, add one other mm -hmm. thing too, not to go on too long about it, but I always fact check, we always fact check stories. We have a fact checker we hire, but I also, also go back over it. And in cases like with Esther and also with the Hensons, I, I went back over it really carefully with them. I mean, I went and I said, like, do I have this right? And basically, am I telling this in a way that you feel is thoughtful and accurate? And not just asking them to like check the box, but like, you know, uh, which is as a journalist, sometimes you're reluctant to do that because you're going to open a can of worms of what if they don't like it? What if they're telling you've got it wrong? Or what if they're disagreeing with something that you actually know is right? And so better not to ask the question. That is you know, but I just, I, I felt in this case with those people, we had to have that conversation prior to release and we did. Um, so anyway, keep going. I just wanted to add that. That was what, that was what I was actually thinking. That was in the back of my mind. I didn't know if I should bring it up or not, but that was one of the things it's, it's all, it's about perspective. Um, and when you're dealing with families and there's a, of course, emotion tied to it, Sometimes the perspective can be kind of dicey. Like you, you, like you said, there's something you know as a fact and they will adamantly say, no, that didn't happen. Yeah. You have to figure out how and, to play that, you know? Yeah. And sometimes you have to, like, you just hold the line and you say, I'm, I'm sorry you feel that way. Mm -hmm. um, like, I'm, this, is, this is what I've found. I'm attributing it to the court records. It comes from the court, rec court records. It, it comes from this other person. Um, and... I have to put, I have to keep this in there and here's why. And you have to have that discussion. Um, and that's hard. And, and, you know, earlier in my career, I think I would have quite honestly, I would have ducked that conversation because it's awkward Yeah. and it's easier to just be like, I'm just going to write, get the copy out there. And if they don't like it, then I don't have to like have that. But I realized that's that. And I eventually came to realize that's wrong. You need to have the, you need to have the awkward conversation. You need to look right. someone you know, zoom in the eyes and say, Hey, this is what I present. And here's why I do it. I don't want to, I have to, and here's why. And you have that. And at the very least, they respect that you, you know, said it to them. Yeah. Um, but other times, like when I, I, and I'll share with you and your listeners, when we were fact-checking this with Esther, there was one or two, I was 
Also, my I have an excellent producer named Amy Gaines, and Amy and I were on the phone with Esther together. And at one point, Esther just said, like, kind of, Jake, you're not getting this. Like, you're falling here into a narrative that the media fell into back then. I feel like you're not understanding. And it was just like, okay, um, help me understand then. And she kind of convinced me that I was I was off on a thing or two. And I thought about it more and I was resisting because as the storyteller, we don't like to give up the steering wheel. We're like, I'm in control. This is my story. You can't control it. You're the, there's that strong impulse, which, and, and sometimes that's right as it should be, you know, this is what the truth is, but there's other times where you have to, you have, I think you do have to ask yourself, do I have this right? Is it possible that this person is like telling me something that is and this is their story and their life. And I have to like rethink if I'm getting this right. And so we had a few of those. Um, and I think the story is better for it in the end. I was, I was going to ask you next, next, what was your biggest takeaway from, from this story? Uh, it sounds like that might have been part of it, but maybe there was something else that was just from covering this story this season. There's a lot of things about it. Like I think that I think that sometimes you assume the things that you wouldn't want to talk about are the things that they wouldn't talk wouldn't want to talk about. And conversely, you assume the things that you would want to talk about they would want. It. And that's sometimes just a false assumption. That that goes to the fact like if it had been my cousin that had been uh, murdered. Uh, I would assume that's never happened to me, so I can't know their mindset, but I would assume I would never want to talk to someone like me. And I would feel, and I was like very awkward about even reaching out to them. And then I was surprised to learn they actually were very glad to talk to me. So there was elements of that. And I think that, I think also like the media kind of got this story wrong. And the one hand I'm sympathetic to it because we all make mistakes and we all like are tempted to tell, and I, and I'm sure you could pick apart things that I've done. Um, and it was kind of, I was kind of navigating that too. Like, how do I, in some ways, this is a corrective. I'm telling like a, a different version of this history, but I don't want to go too far to the extreme. So there was that element of it. The last thing is, is always the hardest thing for me is I end up becoming very close with the people whose stories I tell. Like that's, I told you, I spent four years of the family of Syrian refugees. I mean, I was... By the end of that, I was closer to them than I were to some of my own family members. And even with Esther, like she was very emotionally honest with me. Um, you'll hear it gets, some of the conversations we have, it gets very intense, very emotional. Um, and it's really hard sometimes to walk this line between trying to be, you're not a therapist, right? And you're not, you're trying to tell a story, but you're you're trying to do it as, as sensitively as you can. And you want to tell the truth, but you want to, honor that person and and not like blow up their 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 situation when you're done with it and i always find that to be the hardest part is is kind of navigating these personal relationships because the truth is is people always say they'll say like how do you get people to open up to you and that's actually the easy part the hard part is honoring the intimacy that they share with you in a way that is not exploitative in a way that that follows the truth and doesn't like let them get away with things that aren't true, but also has like some deep pathos to it so that you feel who that person is. And that's always freaking tough yeah. and really like emotionally draining. And um, every time I do one of these stories, I say, never again, I'm not, oh, it's too much. It's like, 
you know, um, and then I end up doing them because it's, those are like, those are the stories that I want to listen to where you feel like, you know, these people kind of warts and all, and even if they do things that you don't agree with on some level, you care about them because you've gotten to know them. Um, anyway, I'm rambling, but that no. is, that's the long winded <laughs> answer to your question. No, that's, no, that, that sums it up perfectly. I think because it, that's, I can feel like the the passion you have for the story and you can you can you can hear it in the podcast. I think this is what makes it so compelling and really because you you did get to know these people in depth and really have the empathy for them and yet still realize that, you know, she made some very bad choices, you know, for yeah. a long time. <laughs> you know, yeah. like and and you, you even go through this in the podcast where she will uh list some of the the places or you ask her about some of the times when she could have changed it, when she could have made a different decision and maybe it wouldn't have continued to snowball. Um and yet and she's very honest about that. She's very honest about that. And I really appreciate that. And I appreciate that you're able to you know, stick with that, like you said, uncomfortable uh, question yeah. and conversation to to get that. And then she was very open and upfront about giving you that. Um, but again, there's also still a little thing where you can still maybe that we as people, when we know there's something that we don't want to look at, like we'll look at it, but we're not going to yeah. shine the biggest light on it. It's still yeah. a little bit held back, but we can kind of read between the lines. So all of that was to me very compelling. Um, and the way it was presented was with a lot of heart, but definitely a lot of honesty, which I, I really thought was uh, something that my listeners are really going to enjoy listening to. So next thing I just want to say is what's next for you? Any plans for season? You just said, I don't want to do this anymore. So any more plans for Yeah, season exactly. Four? As I say every time, it's like, <laughs> I'm done with this. I'm quitting. And then you're like, but what about this story? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I do have two ideas kicking around for a season four. Um, one is a, one is like a, is, 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 is kind of a spy theme story, which is one that I, what's happens is interesting is, is that you'll be looking for a story for say for season two, and you'll find something you're really excited about and you'll reach out to the people involved and they'll say, no way, not ever, never. And then two years later, they'll send you a message and say, I've been thinking about it. And, and then you're like, and that's what's happened with the one that I've been looking into more, most recently was the person at the center. It was like, no way. Um, and then thought about it and called me back. And so we're talking now. So we'll see where that goes. A lot of these don't, don't pan out. Um, so yeah, I have a few, I, I have, I, I have another idea too about a story of a kind of fabulous who kind of just made up, just kind of extraordinary lies that people believed. So um, those, but they're on the horizon right now. I, I'm working on something totally different, which is I have a I have a nonfiction book called Bad Paper. It's a true story of a banker and a bank robber who go into business. A, a banker and a former bank robber, a former armed robber who go into business together in the debt collection world. And it's um, we're developing into a fictional TV series for Peacock. Oh, so before cool. I got on the on this call with you, I was on the phone with the screenwriter, and that is so much fun because uh, it's you're not bound by the facts at all. Yeah. It's a little <laughs> I mean, bit easier. Can, <laughs> it's easy, and in some ways, it's harder because yeah. it's like you could do anything you want. But no, but generally, it's so much fun because you can kind of combine characters together and you can make crazy things happen. Um, so often, I have this very very. I, I also write um, young adult fantasy novels. I have like six or seven of them. 
So what I will do is I will, I, I will, I'll jump around in genre and six months from now, I'll be ready to come back to doing other deep cover story. That's what happened with season two. I took six months off and then I did season three uh, in the, the last six months of this year. And it's just like, it's just like letting yourself, because I think the danger is you don't want to just be like, oh, you know, punching the clock. Right. Uh, both because it doesn't make you happy, but I also think if you're having no fun telling the story, then it's not going to be any fun to listen to it. Yeah. So do you write these novels under your your, your same name or do you have a different name? <laughs> yeah, I do it under my name. I, the funny okay. thing is I co-write the novels with a friend of mine from my 20s. Um, I And I thoroughly enjoy it. Um, the co-writing, it's a lot like, I mean, people don't appreciate, but a podcast is like deeply collaborative. Um you're talking, Amy Gaines, my producer, I'm talking to her like every single day. Um, I'm often actually reading to her the scripts each day as I write them. And she's like, yes, no, do this. I wish I um, had that. And that's what makes it fun. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. Cause it's just, it's lonely, right? It's Otherwise you're just like, you're like Jack Nicholson in the shining and you're all work and no play makes yeah. like, I watch that movie. Everyone's like, thinks that's, that's, Oh, that's crazy. It's like, no, that, no, that's that real. Is like, could be me. or like half the people I know given the right circumstances. Oh my God. I was going to say, I, I'm really glad. I mean, all those projects sound, sound so fun and great and different, but I'm really glad that you found the podcast medium because I think it really works for this. And obviously you have a, a fabulous team behind you because these are, these are just really well done and very well put together and compelling and from beginning to end. So I really appreciate it and uh, appreciate the whole team there because I know it takes takes more than one person to to do a show like this. So that's that's amazing. But yeah, I'll be looking forward to season I, four. Um, I'm definitely you know, highly recommending season three for everybody. Or if they haven't listened to the first two seasons, definitely, you know, you can you can pick up where, wherever and listen to each one, um, you know, as, as by season. So, uh, yeah. Um, anything else that I didn't ask that you wanted to say or? No, I, I appreciate you did such a thoughtful job and that you you listened to it all and, and that you were just really engaged with it. I um, I appreciate that. Um, no, it's 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 been a pleasure chatting yeah. with you. I, I appreciated that I got to do that because what happens is, you know, as you're producing something, you don't have time to to just listen. And so when I, when I'm doing something like this, I have to make the time to do it. And I'm really glad that this yeah. was the thing I had to make the time for because I really, really enjoyed it. So thank you so much, Jake. And uh, yeah, we'll be uh, rooting for you for the next thing and for the show. That's so exciting. And we'll definitely be in touch so we can find out when all that's starting to come out and we can let people know. Yeah, I'll come back on. If the show happens, we're awaiting the official green light, but there's definitely a true crime aspect to it. So maybe you can have me back on to talk about the show. Yeah, no, that sounds fun. I love, I love anything, you know, creative and in that genre. So we're happy. We're ha we'll be happy to, to, to let people know about it. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Thank all you. right. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. And I really enjoyed this discussion with Jake Halpern. I want to thank him again for coming on the show and giving us an inside look at season three of Deep Cover. Stay tuned at the end of the show to listen to a clip from Deep Cover season three, Never Seen Again. We thank Pushkin and Deep Cover for allowing us to share a sneak peek with our listeners. You can listen to a new episode every week. New episodes drop on Monday. 
the first episode released on January 30th. And as of today, you have two episodes to listen to. But if you want to binge the entire season the way that I did, and I highly recommend because you'll be at the edge of your seat to find out what happens at the end of each episode, you can subscribe to Pushkin Plus to hear the whole season at once. There's a link in the show notes or go to pushkin.fm to find out more. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, and YouTube. Thank you so much for listening once again. And until next time, be good to one another. In the summer of 1999, a young woman in South Carolina disappeared in the middle of the night. Seven years passed. She was presumed dead. Then a tip came in, a tip that would turn the entire investigation on its head. He said, I think I found your girl. and She's alive. She's in New York. And I said, really? Yeah, really. According to this tip, this missing woman was now a student at Columbia University. But the small-town detective on the case in South Carolina, he didn't believe it. So he kept poking around. I said, I'm calling about a girl you might know. And he said, I wondered when you were going to call. When my son brought her home, I, I knew she was trouble. So who was this woman? The detective ultimately became convinced that she was a master of deception a spy who went by many aliases. She was using Jenna Myers, Jenna Marie Myers, Jennifer Myers. Natalie. I knew her as Natalie. His investigation drew in the Secret Service, the U.S. Marshals, and the Justice Department. There was a nationwide manhunt. Allegations of murder, fraud, and espionage swirled. I mean, there are a lot of people stealing names, but something dealing with espionage, spies, that was a fascinating development. How are we not finding this young girl who, you know, stole some identities? But good grief, guys, we're the federal government here. We got to be able to do that. I need to know. I need to know if she's dead or alive. I just need to know that she's okay or she's gone. No one could find her or figure out what she was really after. I think people think that I had this master plan and I went out and did it. You know, like, it's not fun, right? You're constantly scared. You have no support. You have no one to talk to. It never occurred to me, quite frankly, that I would get caught or could get caught or that anyone would get hurt. I mean, I figured nothing would ever happen. Deep Cover, Season 3. Never Seen Again coming January 30th from Pushkin Industries. Subscribe to Pushkin Plus to hear the whole season early and ad-free. Find Pushkin Plus on the Deep Cover Show page in Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm slash plus.